Chapter Thirteen of My Path to Atheism by Annie Besant. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Thirteen Constructive Rationalism. It is a common complaint against the rationalistic school of thought that they can destroy but cannot construct, that they tear down but do not build up, that they are armed only with the axe and with the sword and not with the trowel and the mason's line. We have had enough of negations, is a common cry. Give us something positive. Much of this feeling is foolish and unreasonable. The negation of error, where error is supreme, is necessary before the assertion of truth can become possible. Before a piece of ground can be sown with wheat, it must be cleared of the weeds which infest it. Before a solid house can be built in the place of a crumbling ruin, the ancient rubbish must be carried off, and the rotten walls must be thoroughly pulled down. Destructive criticism is necessary and wholesome. The heavy battering ram of science must thunder against the walls of the churches. The swift arrows of logic must rain on the black-robed army. The keen lance-points of irony must pierce through the leather jerkin of superstition. But the destruction of orthodox Christianity being accomplished, there remains for the rationalist much more to do. He has to frame a code which shall rule in the place of the code of Moses and of Jesus. He has to found a morality which shall replace the morality of the Bible. He has to construct an ideal which shall be as attractive as the ideal of the churches. He has to proclaim laws which shall supersede revelation. In a word, he has to build up the religion of humanity. As the rationalist looks abroad over the contending armies of faith and of reason, he gradually recognises the fact that his new religion, if it is to serve as a bond of union, must stand on stable ground, apart from the warring hosts. Round the idea of God rages the hottest din of the battle. The old, popular and traditional belief is wounded to the death and is slowly breathing out its life. The philosophical subtleties of the metaphysician are beyond the grasp of folk busied chiefly with common work. The new school of theists, believers in a spiritual personal God, stands on a slippery incline, whereon is no firm foothold. It simply spreads over the abysses of thought a sentimental veil of poetical imaginings, and bows down before a beatified and celestial man, whose image it has sculptured out of the thought-marble of its sublimest aspirations. If the idea of God be thus warred over, thus changing, thus uncertain, it is plain that the new religion cannot find its foundation on this shifting and disputed ground. While theologians are wrangling about God, plain men are looking wistfully over the shattered idols to find the ideal to which they can cling. The new religion, then, studying the varying phases of the God idea, seizes on its one permanent element its idealised resemblance to man, its embodiment of the highest humanity, and, grasping this thought, it turns to men and says, In loving God you are only loving your own highest selves. In conforming yourselves to the divine image you are only conforming yourselves to your own highest ideals. The unknown God, whom you ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you, in serving your family, your neighbours, your country, you serve this unknown God. This God is humanity, the race to which you belong. This is the veiled God whom all generations have worshipped in heaven, 
while he trod the world around them in every human form, this is the only God, the God who is manifest in the flesh. Quote, there is no God, O Son, if thou be none. End quote. The first great constructive effort of the new religion is thus to transform the idea of God and to turn all men's aspirations, all men's hopes, all men's labours into this channel of devotion to humanity, that so the practical outcome of the new motive power may be a steady flow of loving and energetic work for man, work that begins in the family and spreads in ever-widening circles over the whole race. The transformation of the central figure necessarily transforms also the whole idea of religion, which must take its colour from that centre. Revelation from heaven being no longer possible, its place must be supplied by study on earth. Revealed laws being no longer attainable, it becomes the duty of the humanitarian to discover natural laws. This duty is the more cheering from the manifest failure of revealed laws, as exemplified in popular Christianity. Law, in the mouth of the believer in Revelation, means a command issued by God. The laws of nature are the rules laid down by God, in accordance with which all things move. They are the behests of the creator of nature, the controlling wires of the mechanism, held by the hand of God. But law, in the mouth of the rationalist, means nothing more than the observed and registered invariable sequence of events. Thus it is said, a stone falls to the ground in obedience to the law of gravitation. By the law of gravitation, the Christian would mean that God had ordered that all stones should so fall. The rationalist would simply mean that all stones do so fall, in that invariable sequence he calls the law of gravitation. Obedience to the laws of nature replaces in the religion of humanity obedience to the laws of God. As there is no inspired revelation of these laws, the student must carefully and patiently ascertain them, either by direct observation, or most often in the books of those who have devoted their lives to the elucidation of nature's code. Scientific books will, in fact, replace the Bible, and by the study of the laws of health, both physical, moral, and mental, the rationalist will ascertain the conditions which surround him to which he must conform himself if he desires to retain physical, moral, and mental vigour. This difference in the authority which is obeyed leads naturally to the difference of morality between the orthodox Christian and the rationalist. Christian morality consists of obedience to the will of God, as revealed in the Bible. The grand difficulty regarding this obedience is that the will of Jehovah, as revealed to the Jews at different times, varies so much from age to age that the most zealous Christian must fail to obey all the conflicting behests, prefaced by a Thus saith the Lord. God would, of course, never command anyone to do a thing which was directly wrong, yet God distinctly said, Thou shalt not suffer a witch to live. And God sanctioned slavery, and God commanded persecution on account of religious convictions. True, Christians plead that all these laws are obsolete, but what is that but to acknowledge that revealed morality is obsolete, i.e. that it was never revealed by God at all? For a command to persecute must be either right or wrong. If right, it is the duty of Christians to obey it, and to raise once more the stakes of Smithfield for heretics and unbelievers. If wrong, it can never have come from God at all, and must be blasphemously attributed to him. 
In God, Christians tell us, there is no changeableness, neither shadow of turning. Then what pleased him in long past ages would please him still, and what he commanded yesterday would be right to-day. Thus, fatally, does revealed morality fail when tested, and it becomes impossible to know which particular will of God he desires that we should obey. Now, once more, the rationalist experiences the advantages of his new motive power. He has to serve humanity, and is unencumbered by the difficulties attendant upon pleasing God. Not the pleasure of God, but the benefit of man, is the basis of his morality. Revealed morality is as a child's garment, into which one should try to force the limbs of a full-grown man. It is the morality of the past, stereotyped for the use of today and is clumsy, archaic, half illegible from age. Rational morality, on the other hand, grows with the growth of those who follow its dictates. Its errors are corrected by wider experience. Its omissions are filled up by the irrefragible arguments of necessity. It is founded upon the needs of man. His happiness is its sole object. Not only his physical happiness, not only the fulfilment of the desires of the body for ease and comfort, but the satisfaction also of all the cravings of his intellectual and moral powers, the love of truth, the love of beauty, the love of justice. A morality founded on this basis can never be overthrown. One sure test it affords whereby to decide on the morality or the immorality of any given action, is it useful to man? Does it tend to the promotion of human happiness? The will of God is doubtful, and is always disputable, and therefore it can never form the foundation of a universal system of morality, a code which shall unite all men in obedience. A code which shall unite all men must needs be founded on those human interests which are common to all men. Such a code is the utilitarian. For man's happiness is on earth, and can be known and understood. The promotion of that happiness is an intelligible aim. The test of morality may be applied by every one. It is a system which everybody can understand, and which the common sense of each must approve. For by it man lives for man, man labours for man. The efforts of each are directed to the good of all, and only in the happiness of the whole can the happiness of each part be perfected and complete. There is much popular misconception with regard to utilitarianism. Utility is supposed to include only those material things which are useful to the body, and which tend to increase physical comfort. But utility includes all art, for art cultures the taste and refines the nature. It thus adds a thousand charms to life, deepens, softens, purifies human happiness. Utility includes all study, for study awakens and trains the intellectual faculties, and therefore increases the sources of happiness possible to man. Utility includes all science, for science is man's true providence, foreseeing the dangers that threaten him, and shielding him against their shock. Science leads man up to those intellectual heights, where to stand a while and breathe in the keen, clear air after dwelling in the turbid atmosphere of daily toils and cares, is as the refreshment of the pure mountain wind to the weary inhabitant of the crowded city streets. Utility includes all love and search of truth, for the discovery of a truth is the keenest pleasure of which the noblest mind is susceptible. It includes all sublimest virtue, for self-sacrifice and devotion yield the purest forms of happiness to be found on earth. 
In a word, utility includes everything which is useful in building up a grander manhood and womanhood, wiser, purer, truer, tenderer than that we have to-day. Such is the basis of the morality which is to supersede the supernatural morality of the churches. A morality which is, for this life and for this world, since we have this life and are in this world, a morality which seeks to ensure human happiness on this side of the grave, instead of dreaming of it on the other side, a morality which endeavours to carve solid heavens here, instead of seeing them in distant cloud-lands, white and soft and beautiful, but still only clouds. One vast advantage of this humanitarian philosophy is that it endeavours to train men into unselfishness, instead of following the popular Christian plan of making self the central thought. Self is appealed to at every step in the New Testament. If we are bidden to rejoice under persecution, it is because great is your reward in heaven. If urged to pray, it is because thy Father, which seeth in secret himself, shall reward thee openly. If to be charitable, it is because at the judgment it will bring a kingdom as the recompense. If to resign home or wealth, it is because we shall receive a hundredfold in this present life and in the world to come life everlasting. Even the giver of a cup of cold water shall in no wise lose his reward. It is one system of bribes, mingling the thought of personal pain with every effort of human improvement and human happiness, and thereby directly fostering and encouraging selfishness and gilding over it with the name of religion and piety. Humanitarian morality, on the other hand, while utilising the natural and rightful craving for individual happiness as a motive power, endeavours to accustom each to look to and to labour for the happiness of all, making that general happiness the aim of life. Thus it gradually weakens the selfish tendencies and encourages the social, holding up ever the noble ideal by the very contemplation of its beauty, transforming its votaries into its likeness. Vivre pour autrui is the motto of the utilitarian code, and in so living the fullest and happiest life for self is really attained. So closely drawn are the bands that bind men together, that happiness and unhappiness react from one to another, and as the general standard of happiness rises higher and higher, the wheels of social life run more and more easily, with less of friction, less of jar, and therefore with increased comfort to each individual member. While Christianity develops selfishness by its continual cry of Save thyself, utilitarianism gradually develops unselfishness by the nobler whisper Save others, and in so doing thou shalt thyself be saved. Delivered from every debasing fear of an unknowable and inscrutable power, utilitarianism works with a single heart and a single eye for the happiness of the race, stamping with the brand of wrong at every act the general repetition of which would be harmful to society, or the tendency of which is injurious, and sealing as right every act which brightens human life, and makes the general happiness more perfect and more widely spread. As morality rises higher and higher, human judgment will grow keener and purer, and in the times to come probably many an act now approved on all sides will be seen to be harmful, and will therefore become marked as immoral while, on the other hand, acts that are now considered wrong, because offensive to God, will be seen to be beneficial to man, and will therefore be accepted by all as moral. 
Thus utilitarian morality can never be a bar to progress, for it will become higher and nobler as man mounts upwards. Revealed morality is as a milestone on the road of the world's onward march. It marks how far the world had travelled when its tables of law were first set up in its place. As a milestone it is useful, interesting and instructive, and none would desire to destroy it, but if the milestone be removed from its post as a mark of distance, and be laid across the road as a barrier, which none must overclimb in days to come, then it becomes necessary for the pioneers of progress to hew it to pieces, that men may go on their way unchecked, and this revealed morality now lies across the upward path of the world, and must be broken in pieces with the hammer of logic and the axe of common sense, so that we may press ever higher up the mountain of progress, whose summit is hid in everlasting cloud. And what has constructive rationalism to say to us, when we stand face to face with the mighty destroyer of all living things? Your creed may do well enough to live by, say objectors, but is it good to die by? A creed that is good in life must needs be good in death, and never yet was a hero life closed by a coward death. What can better smooth the bed of the dying man than the knowledge that the world is the happier for his living? that he leaves it better than he found it, that he has helped to raise and purify it. What easier pillow to rest the dying head on than the memory of a useful life? The rationalist has no fear lurking around his deathbed. No lurid gleams from a hell on the other side lighten around him as the breath begins to fail. No angry god frowns on him from the great white throne. No devil stands beside him to drag him down into the bottomless pit. Quietly, peacefully, happily, without fear and without dread, he passes out of life. As calmly as the tired child lies down to sleep in its mother's arms, and passes into dreamless unconsciousness, so calmly does the rationalist lie down in the arms of the mighty mother, and pass into dreamless unconsciousness on her bosom. To the rationalist the future of the race replaces in thought the future of the individual. For that he thinks, for that he plans, for that he labours. A heaven upon earth for those who come after him. Such is his inspiration to effort and to self-devotion. He seeks the smile of man instead of the smile of God, and finds in the thought of a happier humanity the spur that Christians seek in the thought of pleasing God. His hopes for the future spread far and wide before him, but it is a future to be inherited by his children in this same world in which he himself lives, freer and fuller life, wider knowledge, deepened and more polished culture. All these are to be the heritage of the generations to come, and it is his to make that heritage the richer by every grander thought and nobler deed that he can do to-day. Let us place side by side the dogmas of Christianity and the motive power of the rationalist, and see which of these two is the gladder life moulder of man. Christianity has a God in heaven, all-powerful and all-wise, who in ages gone by made the universe and foreordained all that should happen in time to come, who created man and woman with a serpent to tempt them, and made for them the opportunity of falling, who, having made the opportunity, forced them to take it. It is said that Adam and Eve were free agents, but they were nothing of the kind, for the Lamb was slain from the foundation of the world. The sacrifice was offered before the sin was committed, and the sacrifice being made, the sin was its necessary consequence. If Adam had been free, he might not have sinned, and then there would have been a slain lamb, and no sin for which he could atone. 
but God, having provided the Saviour, was obliged to provide the sinner, and therefore he made the tree of knowledge and sent the tempter to entrap the parents of mankind. They fell according to God's predestination, and thus became accursed, and then the waiting Redeemer was revealed, and the divine scheme was complete. Accursed for a sin in which they had no part, the children of Adam are born with an evil nature, and being evil they act evilly, and thereby sink lower and lower, at their feet yawns a bottomless pit, and the road to it is broad, easy, and pleasant. Above their heads shines a luxurious heaven, and the path is narrow, steep, and rugged. Their nature, God given to all, drags them downwards. The Holy Ghost, God given to some, drags them upwards. Immorality is in their inheritance, and few there be that find immortal happiness, while many there be that go in at the gate of hell to immortal woe. A severance, bitter beyond all earthly bitterness of parting, is in store for all, since at the great day of judgment one shall be taken and the other left, and there will not be a family, some of whose members will not be lost for ever. Eternal life to the vast majority is to mean eternal torment, and they are to be salted with fire, burning yet never burnt up, consuming ever but never consumed. Towards the gaining of heaven, towards the avoidance of hell, all human effort must be turned. What shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? All life must be one striving to enter in at the straight gate, for many shall seek to enter in and shall not be able. Poverty, oppression, misery, what matters it? The light affliction which is but for a moment worketh a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Thus the world is forgotten for the sake of another, crushed out of sight, beneath the overwhelming grandeur of eternity. The spur to human effort is blunted by the infinitesimal importance of time as compared with eternity. Bad government, bad laws, injustice, tyranny, pauperism, misery, all these things need not move us, for we seek a better country that is a heavenly. We are strangers and pilgrims. Here we have no continuing city, but we seek one to come. Our citizenship is in heaven, and there also is our home. True, Christians do not carry out into daily life these phrases and thoughts of their creed, but in so much as they do not they are the less Christian, and the more imbued with the spirit of rationalism. Rationalists they are the vast majority six days in the week, and are only Christians on the Sunday. To come out of these old world dreams into rationalism is like coming into the open air after a hothouse. Rationalism clears away the terrible god of orthodoxy, the fall, the serpent, the saviour, the hell, the devil. Work, toil, struggle, it cries to man. The ills around you are not the appointment of God, not the effects of his curse. They arise from your own ignorance, and may all be cleared away by your own study and your own effort. Salvation? Yes, you need saviours, but the saviours must save you from earthly woes, and not from the wrath of God. Save yourselves by thought, by wisdom, by earnestness. Redemption? Yes, you need redeeming, but the redemption you want is from vice, from ignorance, from poverty, and must be wrought out by human effort. Prayer? Yes, you need praying for, but the prayer you want is work compelling the result, not crying out for what you desire, but winning it by labour and by toil. The world stretches wide before you, capable of paying you a thousandfold for all you do for it. Life is in your hands, full of all glorious possibilities. 
throw away your dreams of heaven and make heaven here leave aside visions of the life to come and make beautiful the life which is full of hope full of joy strong to labour patient to endure mighty to conquer goes forth the new glad creed into the sad grey christian world at her touch men's faces soften and grow purer and women's eyes smile instead of weeping at last at last the heir arises to take to himself his own and the negation of the usurped sovereignty of the popular and traditional god over the world develops into the affirmation of the rightful monarchy of man End of chapter 13